as we continue our study in the book of Acts. That's on page 773. And by the way, just let me remind you, every week, if you don't have a Bible or didn't bring a Bible, just grab one in the lobby. Of course, you may have a smartphone, and that's good too. But every week, we have an outline in your program, and there's a page number on there on the text that we're in. So you can grab a Bible, and you'll find it on page 773 today. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said his last words to his followers. He said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said these words just before he ascended into heaven. And then we know he sat down at the right hand of God. In Acts chapter 2, right after this event, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus' words began to be fulfilled. Jesus had placed his disciples, his followers, uh, in charge of building his church. And the Holy Spirit came on them on, in Acts chapter 2 on this day. Uh, when they had gathered, there was at least 120 of them in the upper room, according to Acts 1. And they went out into who he was and what he had done. They were being witnesses. They were telling the truth about what they knew. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. That was uh, prophetic and a command to his followers. And they were to tell people what they knew about Jesus and what Jesus had done for them. And so they went out in uh, the streets and they were given the uh, miraculous ability to speak in languages that they had not yet learned, called other tongues. That's what it was meant, languages that were not learned but were supernaturally given. And it was th- these were given to communicate about Jesus. At that point, the apostle Peter got up and proclaimed. He had a chance to preach a sermon, and he took advantage of it. And, of course, it's the amazing thing that happened in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, and it was kind of dangerous. And Peter got up without fear, and he proclaimed a message very clear about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. He died on the cross. It wasn't... um, You know, tough luck. It was God's plan from the beginning that Jesus would die on the cross and pay the penalty for sins. Peter explained that this is uh, what God intended, and he invited people to turn to the true and living God and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And we know that about 3,000 people did on that day. They placed their faith in Christ, they believed. They were saved from the penalty of their sins, and then they were baptized as new believers in Jesus. In Acts 1.8, as we mentioned, it was both a prophecy and a command. And this is the unfolding plan of the book of Acts. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where it got its start. That's where the church started, Jerusalem. And then... You'll go to Judea and Samaria. Judea is a province around Jerusalem. Samaria is the first province north of Jerusalem, all in the land of Israel. And God brought persecution on the church. 
and just force them out of the city where they were comfortable. And the gospel and the good news went with it, and the gospel spread. Persecution continued to move the believers away from Jerusalem and Israel, and um, they went to the ends of the earth. They began to go. And the good news about Jesus went with them wherever they went. They went to Syria and Cilicia and Pamphylia and Pisidia. They went to the island of Cyprus. They went to Phrygia, Galatia, and Macedonia, to Asia, and Achaia, just to name a few, because that's what we've seen so far in the book of Acts. In the first century, Christianity was meant to be contagious. It spread like an epidemic. And the word contagious often... Contagious has a good vibe to it. We often say that laughter is contagious. It also has a very negative uh, connotation. um, First of all, contagious means capable of being transmitted by bodily contact with an infected person or object. Be careful. Secondly, caring or spreading a contagious disease. And thirdly, tending to spread from person to person. So be careful who you're sitting next today. I don't know what they brought. So this, in a good sense, the gospel is good news about Jesus, and it is meant to spread from person to person. Those who are infected by truth are meant to spread this good news about Jesus. It's just about telling people to have a PA what you know. You can't tell people what you don't know. You don't have to have a PhD. You tell people what you know. What is your experience? What do you know about Jesus? What do you know that Jesus has done for you? Can you share that with one other person? When you do, you're being a witness. You're being obedient to Jesus's command in Acts 1.8. In Acts 19, we're reminded how the gospel spread in the book of Acts. How the good news was contagious. Uh, We want to look at beginning at verses, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, and we see the need for sound teaching. And we're going to pick it up in verse 1 with the place. And by the way, as a missionary, the Apostle Paul was very intentional about his role in being a witness. He just didn't like wait for it to happen, he went strategically positioned himself in as many opportunities as he could so he could let people know about Jesus. Verse 1, while Apollos was at Corinth, that's where we left him last week, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Paul had been in Syria, uh, in Antioch of Syria. That was the church, the sending church for his three missionary journey. When he got to Ephesus, he had just been in Ephesus previously, months back, and now he's back in Ephesus, and he found some disciples. And so uh, map number one shows us, okay, this is where Apollos was last week at the end of Acts 18. He had been in Ephesus, and he had met Priscilla and Aquila, and they explained to him the gospel more clearly and more fully so that he could understand. He had a lot of good information. He just needed to be mentored a little bit. 
And after that, he went to Corinth. And that's where we find him at the beginning in verse 1. He's uh, in Corinth. And map number 2, this is Paul's journey. He, he was down in Jerusalem. That's where the church got its start. He made a visit to Jerusalem. Then he went to Antioch of Syria. Antioch is the sending church, financially supporting Paul. And um, he's retraced some of his steps. He's gone west. And now we find him in Ephesus in verse 1. The situation, verses 2 and 3. Um, so there he found some disciples and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. There was something that happened when Paul had interaction with them that he thought that it might be good to ask this question. He, was, he picked up some clues as he talked to them about what they understood already. Maybe he even sensed that they didn't have the Holy Spirit. You know, spiritual things are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And um, so here are some disciples... What does that mean? Well, I would say they're probably kind of Old Testament kind of disciples. They believe the right information that they have at this point, but this is a transitional time. The book of Acts is a great transition for the church, kind of from Old Testament times to New Testament times. You have some people living in their mind under Old Testament law, even though Jesus had already died, and they don't know that Jesus uh, has paid the penalty for their sins yet. Remember, this, there was a similar situation with Priscilla and Aquila with Apollos. Apollos understood about John, but Apollos didn't understand the whole story about Christianity yet. And they, they, they explained that to him. Um, verse 3, Paul asks another question. Then, well, what baptism did you receive? They answered, John's baptism. Okay. That explained it. That's the problem. They have some partial information. They don't know the rest of the story. They explained they had received John's baptism. Well, John had a very big role in the life of Jesus. And he was uh, an important... uh, His birth is mentioned in Luke 1. He was so important how he came to be, and his birth was a fulfillment of Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3, about there would be one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And so John had a role of preparation. He came to explain that God was sending Messiah, the promised one, and his job was to get people ready. How did he do that? He told them to repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Get your lives in order, folks. It's time. God is going to change things big time. You better be ready for him. In fact, God God is going to show up. The kingdom of God is at hand because the king, Jesus, is at hand. And so thousands of people went out to hear John in the desert, and they went to the Jordan River where John was preaching, and they got baptized by John or his disciples. And so here, and the whole purpose was to get people ready to hear when Jesus showed up. So a large number of people were ready, and and it was easy for them to listen to Jesus 
when he came because of their interactions with John. Verse 4, the instructions, here's Paul bringing clarity. Paul said, pretty much what I have just talked about, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus. And so here are the disciples in Ephesus. They did not know about Jesus. They did not know about Christian baptism yet. They did not know about the Holy Spirit. But their hearts were ready from uh, John's message. Now, John had been dead for over 20 years. And so think about this. In the New Testament world, in the Mediterranean world, there were pockets of people. These would have been Jewish people who had been to Jerusalem at some time, like 20 years earlier, and they had heard John. And they, they responded to John. And they got their hearts right in, and they went back home. In this case, maybe it was Ephesus. They could have been in other cities too, but right now they're in Ephesus. And all they have is John's information. They don't have the whole story yet. And I'm guessing that Paul found this on many occasions where he would run into people who had been to Jerusalem at some time in the past and they got part of the story and now Paul just uh, has the opportunity to clear things up. You know, I find today we're like in the same boat. We have lots of people with partial information. You know, people that go to church and they, they get part of the story. They learn about God. And they come away thinking, yeah, we gotta, we're supposed to believe in God and we're supposed to be good. And maybe God will accept us. There's all kinds of churches where people learn that. There's almost a human element thinking the way we're going to get to heaven or be accepted by God is we've got to sort of clean up our acts and be as good as possible. And that's not the good news. That's not the message that the Apostle Paul was proclaiming. And... I often find, and this was, you know, this is how I grew up. I grew up going to church on and off, and I learned about God, and I learned some creeds that were good, but I thought I was supposed to believe in the creeds and be good, and maybe I'd go to heaven, and that, that being good wasn't working out too well, so I just kind of gave up. And then I got really smart because I went to college and became an atheist, because that makes really a lot of sense when you're in college. And so um, it was only later that I really heard the good news, because I hadn't really understood it because it's pretty crazy to think that Jesus would die on the cross. He would pay the penalty for the sins of the entire world. And he did all the work. There are no good works that I can do to add anything. There's no good works that you can do to add anything to what Jesus did. And it was totally enough. Can you believe that? Because that's the gospel. That's the good news. And... uh, Here's the thing. God can use you to help people understand. Believe in God. People around you that have partial information, you know, it's just like, oh, you just need to believe in God. Well, the Muslims believe in God, right? Okay. Is that the gospel? No, it's not. Um, The result to Paul's ministry, verses 5 through 7, on hearing this, they were baptized those Ephesian disciples, in the name of the Lord Jesus. They received Christian baptism. 
And, you know, Luke doesn't tell us the whole story. Luke gives us a capsule. We shouldn't expect, you know, Luke wasn't there. Okay, there were 723 words that were said here today, and I'm going to write them all down. No, Luke just gives us the short version of what happened. On hearing this, they were baptized. What did they hear? Well, probably heard a sermon from Paul, and he probably answered a lot of their questions. And then they were baptized. We don't know where. When Paul placed his hands on them, verse 6, the Holy Spirit came on them just like it happened with Peter at Cornelius' house, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now we know the number. There were 12. And so they believe. They're baptized. And so the Apostle Paul is now going to place his hands on them. He is the one who has apostolic authority. By the way, I don't have apostolic authority. He has apostolic authority. No New Testament is written. They have no information that we have about the New Testament. They have the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine. They have the apostles to explain things. And authority comes from the apostles. And there, in this case, it shows the, uh, these Ephesians' disciples come under the authority, their, their Christianity. They're not going to be a sect. They're not going to be a cult. They're now coming under the authority of the church of Jesus Christ, delegated by the authority of the apostles. The presence of the Holy Spirit on this occasion was marked by miraculous ability to speak in tongues or to speak in unlearned languages. They were known languages. They weren't unknown languages, but they were languages, and it was supernatural. And then they had the ability to prophesy, and that would be to speak some truth about the future. They didn't know everything about the future, but they were given an ability to speak about events in the future that were prophetic. And this, uh, these miraculous abilities were meant to be signs, remember, to authenticate the message and the messenger. The, this, Paul is God's spokesman. How do you know? Because his message is accompanied by these miraculous gifts. And um, they gave proof of the re- reality of God's work and God's presence. These miraculous events were a crucial part of God's plan in spreading the good news before any of the rest of the New Testament has been written. We sometimes don't get that because we sit here and all of our lives, we've had the whole book and the whole story, and people tell us stories and they, we get sermons. But this stuff is like ty- entirely new. And okay, if you wanted to, you couldn't carry around the Old Testament with you. You had to go to the synagogue where the uh, rabbi would pull out a scroll and unroll the scroll and he could read it to you. That's how they knew the word of God. Uh, the writer of Hebrews reminds us of uh, this whole concept of signs and wonders. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the writer says, We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we don't drift away. He's reminding his audience, Christians, in this case, Jewish Christians, 
not to forget about the gospel, okay? What they've heard. Don't drift away from the gospel. For since the message spoken through angels was binding. What message? Did you have any message from angels? He's referring to the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai when, when the Ten Commandments were written on tablets and they were mediated by angels. Angels delivered that message. The Jewish people know that. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, the law of the Old Testament was binding. And every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? We've been given a great salvation. Sins are forgiven. We don't deserve it. We never can deserve it. God's mercy. Next slide. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, Jesus announced it when he came, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Who heard him? The disciples, the apostles, those in his crew, who he sent out in Acts chapter 1 to be witnesses. God and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will, not according to your will, what you want. It's according to his will. God testified. He was authenticating. He was giving proof by miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, like speaking in other languages. Now, here's an observation I'd like to make. I've talked about this before. Let's have it. Remember that historical narrative in the Bible is meant to be primarily descriptive, not primarily prescriptive. What does that mean? Well, thanks for asking. I hope somebody would ask. <laughs> Primarily, the book of Acts describes what happened. It's, it's what God did. It's what the people did. It's not necessarily prescriptive. What's that? Prescribed. It's what you must do. Historical narrative throughout the Bible is like this. The book of Genesis is descriptive of what happened. Yes, there are principles in it that uh, we can take away, that we can learn about God, we can apply to our own life. But Cain killed Abel. What does that mean? Okay, you want to kill your brother? He's driving you crazy? Cain killed Abel, therefore, go do it. Probably not what the Bible intended. The book of Judges is one of the worst books in the Bible. At least it's got... Some of the most sin you'll ever read about. And there's a lot to learn that's very valuable. You can learn to walk with God in the book of Judges, but you can, you can see a lot of evil. Murder, rape, etc., etc., etc. Were you supposed to do it? I don't think God intended that. The book of Acts is a historical narrative. It tells what happened in this time in the first century before the rest of the Bible was written. And there are a lot of things to take away. There's some direct things, like Jesus said, you shall be witnesses. But a lot of it just describes what happened. So, it, when we take, for example, okay, in this occasion, Paul laid his hands, and the, the, this group of Ephesian believers received the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues. So does that mean that every time somebody comes to faith, we've got to put our hands on them, and they have to speak in tongues? No, it doesn't mean that. It's just what happened in the first century. 
Because what we have today is a model of people, and I came to faith, and I've never spoken in tongues. And nobody laid their hands on me. And there were no apostles present either. And if you read the rest of the New Testament, you'll find this model of believing, receiving the Holy Spirit. And God is the one who determines who gets the gifts. I don't. You don't. Can he give the gifts of tongues? Sure he can. I don't think it's normative. But he can. And if he does, it's too authentic. Number two, secondly, the need for strategic. We had the need for instruction. Now we had the need for strategic evangelism. And by the way, need for strategic or need for instruction. People just need clarity about the truth. It's not like I'm the smartest person in the world. It's not like, well, the bridge is the only church in town who has the truth. No, but this is what matters is this book. What does this book say? People who study it can understand it. Uh, people who are followers of Christ and have the Holy Spirit can understand truth. You can understand truth. You don't have to have a PhD to understand truth, okay? Um, And people around us sometimes don't have the simple information that you have, and you could help them with clarity. Okay, verses 8 through 22, the need for strategic evangelism and discipleship, the strategy. Here's Paul's strategy. Same old, same old. Paul entered the synagogue. I don't mean to bore you with that. He entered the synagogue and he, bo- he spoke boldly there for three months. This is the longest we've ever seen Paul in a synagogue. Synagogue is the gathering place of uh, Jewish religious people to hear God's word from the Old Testament. There was prayer there. There was worship there. They sang hymns and they talked about and explained Old Testament passages. Paul went there because he had a strong background in the Old Testament and he could help them understand about the Messiah Jesus from his understanding of of, uh, the fulfillment of how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And he spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus was the king, the Messiah to come. Verse 9, but some of them became obstinate. After three months, they got tired of Paul. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Uh, The way refers to uh, Christians, the way of Jesus. I am the way, Jesus said, and the life. The people who believed in Jesus were called the way. So Paul, after the trash talk from um, those who were maligning the way, so Paul left them. He took the disciples somewhere else. He took those who were interested in Jesus with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. We don't know much about Tyrannus. He could have been a philosopher who had a lecture hall, who had a school where he taught, or this, he could have been the owner of this. Likely, Paul had to rent this. One of the things we know, he's going to be here for two years daily. What an opportunity. Ephesus, by the way, is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. A lot of people are going to come through this place. Um, two to 300,000 people in the first century. The Progress Report, verse 10, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Is that hyperbole? Oh, maybe. The point of it is God's word had an amazing impact in that area. We know that many churches were planted outside of Ephesus. 
Churches that are in the New Testament, like Colossae, was planted during these days. And people came into Ephesus. They came from all over the Roman Empire over a two-year period. Wandered into the school of Tyrannus. Jewish religious people. God-fearers. Gentiles. People just interested in philosophy to learn about what um, Paul had to say. And not only that, you have other missionaries that are traveling in the area, uh, that are planting churches. The gospel is expanding. Um, there's some evidence, a good reason to believe, that this being daily at the school of Tyrannus was primarily from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., it was during the siesta time in the city of Ephesus. You return to a siesta from 11 to 4 in your, in your job. You go home, eat lunch, take a nap, go back to work at 4. Paul did this. He, he made tents in the morning. Then he instructed daily at the school of Tyrannus. Then he worked at night, sometimes maybe at ministry, but sometimes back to tent making. Progress report. So they went for two years and everybody heard about the word of the Lord. Huge impact, huge impact. The miracles, verses 11 and 12. Now this gets crazy. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. This is a God thing. God did it. Extraordinary miracles. Luke even uses the word for extraordinary. These aren't just any old miracles. These are unusual miracles. Probably stretch our categories a little bit. Verse 12. And so, that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him, Paul, were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. This is crazy. What was a handkerchief? Well... It was a sweat rag that Paul used in making tents. And what was an apron? Well, it was like the sash that Paul used around his waist when he was working. And people got the idea, if we could just take something Paul has touched, because Paul is... No, it was God who was doing these miracles. Now, what's the back, there's a backstory, there's a backdrop to this whole thing. In Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. We're going to see about it next week. In in Ephesus, the city was way into the supernatural. Magic arts, spells, casting, see that uh, in just a minute. So there's this huge power thing going on. People get the most power in the supernatural. And so God showed up with power. To get people to listen to Paul's message. To get people to listen to Paul. That he's the real deal. And now it gets humorous. Uh, uh, By the way, this passage, is this descriptive or prescriptive? Should you get handkerchiefs? By the way, these were sweat rags that, that touched Paul. You can't get one of those. We, you know, there are people today, you could find it, you know, just... Google prayer cloth. And they use this passage, and it was a sweat cloth, but they have prayer cloths. 
and they anoint them with holy oil. And you can get one free if you send them your name and your address. And they'll just send you one free. And you're on their mailing list for the rest of your life. And, by the way, billions of dollars get raised and spent. And some of these people live in some really nice homes because of their prayer cloth ministry. God can heal. that No doubt about that. He can do it whenever he wants to. But he doesn't do it by people manipulating him to do things. Okay? There was nothing magical about what God did here. Okay, this gets kind of humorous. There's a power encounter. Verses 13 through 16. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. So these guys are not Christians. They're Jews. They have a Jewish background. They have Old Testament information. They have information about the true and living God. Sometimes Jewish exorcists were uh, effective in using God's name, the true and living God of the Old Testament. And at times, casting out demons from people in the name of Jesus. And they're thinking, he can do that. I bet we could do that. Let's just do what Paul's doing. Let's repeat his actions. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. That sounds good. We copy Paul. It worked for Paul. Why not them? Verse 14, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Sceva was not a Jewish chief priest. Maybe he was a priest. Chief priests were in Jerusalem. He was probably a self-proclaimed chief priest. By the way, Luke is just telling the story. He's not trying to decide whether he's a chief priest or not. It's a self-proclaimed title that Sceva has. And he has seven sons. They were doing this. Verse 15, one day the evil spirit answered them. Now, this is dangerous. Talk to an evil spirit. And they answer back. Jesus, I know. This happened in Jesus' ministry, by the way, where evil spirits talk back in fear and extremely humbled in the presence of Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. Did you see demons? They're not, they're not trapped here by the material. They know about eternal things. There's... A, uh, complex communication. They know about Jesus. They're afraid of him. They know about Paul. They've seen Paul's ministry and the success of Paul in the name of Jesus because Paul is the real deal. Paul is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Who do you think you are going around using Jesus' name? Verse 16, the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, seven of them, and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked to the demonic. Because this this, uh, man who was demonized took on supernatural strength. And by the way, that's possible. We see that in the Gospels as well. Supernatural strength, not human strength, above and beyond and he takes on seven guys, and man, he strips them, 
beats them, they are embarrassed when they hit the street, okay? The results, verses 17 through 20, when, when this became known to the Jews and Greek living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Not that everybody became a Christian, but all of a sudden, God has got people's attention. The name of Jesus. Verse 18, many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. This was powerful. Many of those who had believed. These were people who dabbled in the magical arts. They dabbled in casting spells. And they openly confessed their sins, what they had done. And by the way, confessing, uh, see, these were secret arts. And the power was in the secrecy. And by confessing, the idea was, we're going to confess because we want to break the spells. And that's what they did. They brought it to the light. Darkness comes to the light, verse 19. A number who had practiced sorcery, witchcraft, brought their scrolls, their books together, and burned them publicly. We don't know that Paul said you should do this. They just felt compelled to unload this stuff that they had been tied to. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Is that a lot of money? This is silver, silver coins. One coin was valued at one day's labor. If you considered one day's labor, and I don't know what you want to consider as one day's labor, but let's just say it's $50 for one day's labor. 50,000 times 50, 2,500,000 in this bonfire, just like that, at a conversion. Verse 20, in this way, the Lord spread, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power because power is what was all about in Ephesus. And I think the gospel was contagious. The good news was contagious. It spread widely. Verse 21 and 2, the mission continues. And after all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem passing through Macedonia and Achaia, a little bit out of his way. And after I've been there, he said, I must go to Rome also. Here's his plan. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to go the long way. And then uh, I'm going to go to Rome. Rome is about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get in the known world. It's like the ends of the earth, and that's where he's headed. That's where he's going to end up in Acts 28, by the way. Verse 22 he sent two of his helpers, Timothy, we know about him. He came to faith in Acts 16. And Erastus, we don't know about him. He's just now introduced to Macedonia. And that's where Philippi is. While he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. So, map. Do we have a map? Yes, we do. So, Paul's been in Ephesus. And he's going to go uh, north. Make a circle. And um, then he wants, to go to, he wants to go to Jerusalem, and then he wants to go to Rome, but he's not there yet. Um, we have some lessons. Okay, first lesson. Teaching the Word of God must be central for every follower of Christ. And I'm just reminding us from the passage we look at about how, how Paul explained Uh, more fully to those disciples at Ephesus about who Jesus is and what he's done so they can understand and have a solid foundation. And teaching must be so important to us. It must be so important to the church. And it's so important for you as a growing follower of Christ. 
The Word of God is living and powerful. It's active, and um, it feeds your soul so you can thrive as a believer with it. And with it, you can develop a worldview that's biblically accurate so that when you hear messages of the world, they have to go through your filter. Is this true or not true? No, that's a lie. I want to reject it. I don't want to embrace it. I don't want to worry about it. I want to be fearful about that because I know the truth. Got a whole lot of passages here, and I'm going to skip them all. So we're going to lesson number two. Every believer should be baptized as a follower of Christ. And what we have in Ephesus, we have people who are baptized as in, with John's baptism. That's good, isn't it? Yeah, that was good. But they hadn't been baptized as followers of Jesus yet. Jesus wanted all of his followers to be baptized, so they get rebaptized. Second baptism. No way. I was baptized as an infant. I didn't know about it. My parents just felt like, you know, if the church says if the baby dies, won't go to heaven unless he's baptized, you better get this kid baptized. And so they did. I didn't know about it. It wasn't my, I didn't choose it. They did just because they wanted to do what they thought was the right thing. I became a follower of Christ at the age of 25. And I understood the truth. And then I wanted to be baptized as a follower of Christ. Uh, let's do look at Matthew 28, 19, and 20. These were Jesus' instructions to his followers. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So you're going to go. It's all nations, the whole world. And you're going to make disciples. What's that? Spreading the good news, sharing the good news, the gospel. People coming to faith in Christ. And then you're going to help them understand and to grow. Making disciples. Discipleship. When you make a disciple, baptize them. It was a forerunner, okay? The concept of rebaptism is a valid one, by the way. Baptize them. What does that mean? To immerse them. Baptism was about identification. It was identification with the church, God's through the Holy Spirit, being connected to Christ through the Holy Spirit. And it was a public picture of immersion, total identification, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Down into the water, up out of the water. And teaching them to obey. Don't teach them to be good Christians. Teach them to obey everything. Full devotion to Christ. Okay, thirdly, God does miracles to advance his kingdom, not to please people. Just remember that. God can do miracles and he can answer your prayer. So if you want a miracle, ask God for a miracle. He can do it. He won't go against his will that he's already revealed, but he can, he can do miracles. But don't, uh, don't play around with God, and don't, don't be bamboozled by somebody with prayer cloths. Uh, there are so many people who are naive, and they, yeah, they want help, but not according to truth. Um, God's job is that nobody can manipulate God into doing miracles, We cannot get God to perform. His job is not to impress us or to please us. We can pray and we can ask God for miracles. Fourth one. This is the last one. Don't dabble with demons. Don't dabble with demons. This is what happened to the seven sons of Sceva. You know, evil is interesting. It's easy to be curious about evil. I was fascinated with the concept before I became a Christian. 
And one of the ways God got my attention, he sort of showed me the reality of evil before I became a follower of Christ. Sort of like, oh yeah, if there's real evil, there probably is. Oh yeah, this is really happening. I bet Jesus is the real deal. And sure enough, I placed my faith in Christ and everything changed. You don't have to be fearful of evil. It's, there is real spiritual warfare. You have resources to deal with spiritual warfare, but don't go messing with it. Don't go looking for it. Advance the gospel. Don't play around with the demonic. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5 says, The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. The weapons that we have can demolish strongholds of the, of the enemy. The enemy works against people's minds. That's primarily where strongholds are, in the minds of people. We get deceived. People get deceived. Truth, deception. The enemy has been doing deception from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Um, so what are weapons for spiritual warfare? Mentioned these a few weeks back. Weapons for spiritual warfare. Prayer, life. That's what Paul had. You don't have to be an apostle to do spiritual warfare. You just need to walk with Christ. We have the word of God. We can speak truth. And um, we can, we don't have to fear. Don't go looking for trouble. If it comes to you, Stand up, walk with Christ. Okay? So, you're to, you're to be a witness. Tell what you know. Tell what you know about Jesus. Tell what Jesus has done for you. That's it. We're going to share in a time of communion as we uh, close this morning. And communion is a time that we remind each other that uh, Jesus died for us. And we identify him as a corporate body of Christ. And we, have, uh, we take the bread and we take the cup. And the bread is a symbol. It reminds us of the magical or mystical. It was flesh and blood. And um, the cup reminds us of the blood that was shed. It paid for the penalty of our sins. His death for us. His death in our behalf. He died in our place. So when we take the cup and we take the bread together, it reminds us, remember this. Remember, thank you, God. Scripture says, remember this. Remember, remember, remember. That's why we do it. And that's why we keep doing it, because God wants us to remember. Because, you know, if we just did this once every 10 years, you would forget what's central we would forget. We would come up with other things that we think are important. The latest thing, but it's the death of Christ. That's why we're here. And why we're going to be saved from the penalty of sin forever. So the Bible says that we should confess our sins, that we need to be right with God. 1 Corinthians 11 says, let a man or a woman examine themselves before they take this uh, opportunity to share. And so we just must... Uh, Take the time to make sure we're okay with God. If there's any sin in our lives, we need to confess that. We're not going to ask you to burn your scrolls this morning. Just be honest with God right where you are. And if there's anything that you need to tell God you're sorry for and ask for his forgiveness, just do that. 
And here's how we're going to do communion. We're going to have uh, people come to the front at two different stations. And after I pray and give thanks uh, for the bread and the cup, whenever you're ready, you can leave your seat and you can come to one of the stations, take the bread and the cup, and then just go back to your seat and you can take that bread and the cup whenever you are ready. Okay? So let's, uh, let's just bow in prayer. Gracious God, I thank you for um, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the good news. I thank you that we have learned in our lifetime that Jesus died for us. He died in our place. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve life, eternal life, a spiritual birth. But he died so that we could have life. And we just say, thank you. He died for us because you loved us. And he loved us. And we say, thank you. And we take the bread and the cup this morning and we say, thank you, God. And as you're sitting there this morning, if there's anything in your life you just need to talk to God about, do that silently from your heart. We have a promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That promise is true. If you confess your sins this morning, you're forgiven this morning and you're cleansed this morning.